Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Amy Fisher sat in the passenger seat of the prisoner transport van with her head down, reflecting on the day ahead of her. She could already hear the crowd of journalists gathered outside the Nassau County Courthouse waiting for her arrival. It was a cacophony of shouts and camera flashes, growing more frenzied by the second. It took Amy back to the year before, 1992, when she had faced the same swarming crowds the same cameras, the same courthouse. Last time she was here, the judge slapped her with a 15-year prison sentence for attempted murder. Back then, the punishment seemed incomprehensible. Now, she'd grown accustomed to her grim reality. But she didn't want to think about it today. Today was a break from her bleak prison life of hostility and monotony. Today, she got to speak out. Everyone thought they knew the truth, but they only knew some warped version of it, filtered through a Hollywood lens. Today, people would hear her words, directly from her mouth. And this time, it would be Joey Buttafuoco in the defendant's chair. Amy lifted her head and turned toward the courthouse. She wondered if Joey was already inside. She wondered if he felt nervous or scared or sorry now that it was his turn to be punished. She hoped so. He deserved everything coming to him. If there was any justice in the world, he would pay for what he'd done to her. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs. And this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our final episode on the relationship between Joey Buttafuoco and Amy Fisher. In last week's episode, Long Island teenager Amy Fisher became fixated on her 36-year-old ex-boyfriend, Joey Buttafuoco. Her obsession with him grew so intense that she decided to take action against his wife, Mary Jo. In May of 1992, Amy went to the Buttafuoco's home and shot Mary Jo in the head. She survived the attack, 
though with serious injuries, and Amy was charged with attempted murder. Expecting a reduced sentence, Amy pleaded guilty. Instead, she was sentenced to 15 years. This week, we'll see how the Fishers and the Buttafucos grappled with the aftermath of the crime, all while enduring intense public scrutiny. On December 1st, 1992, as 18-year-old Amy Fisher stood before the court to receive her prison sentence, the judge told her, For some people, you have become a media celebrity with a book, TV series, future movies, and countless reams of newspaper and magazine articles. But to this court, you are no celebrity. Despite the judge's clear disgust with the media fervor, the true tabloid frenzy was only just beginning. While Amy was en route to an upstate New York prison, three separate production companies were filming TV movies for three different networks based on Amy and Joey Buttafuoco's affair. NBC's version starring Noelle Parker was based on Amy's account, while CBS partnered with the Buttafuoco's to tell their version of the story. Alyssa Milano starred as Amy. ABC, however, claimed to offer an impartial version of events based on a journalist's reporting but even the supposed true account starring Drew Barrymore portrayed every detail as salaciously as possible. For example, the film included a scene of 12-year-old Amy's sexual encounter with a man who remodeled her family's bathroom. But the scene played out more like the seduction of a hapless workman by an oversexed young woman rather than what it truly was, the sexual assault of a young girl by a predator. The networks faced heavy criticism over these TV productions. New York Daily News reporter Kay Gardella called them sleazy and gutter-hopping efforts. But Hollywood executives claimed they were only catering to the public demand. Bob Iger, then president of ABC TV, said, There is a saturation point, although it seems that the saturation point in the Amy Fisher case is perhaps non-existent. He was apparently correct. ABC won the ratings race, garnering 18.1 million viewers on their Amy Fisher story. The two other TV movies weren't far behind. The TV movies were so popular, they even reached Albion Penitentiary, where Amy Fisher was serving her sentence. The prison television screened the movies in every housing unit. Amy hated the attention, saying, it was the last thing I wanted, I just wanted to crawl in a hole and become invisible. Before I continue with Amy's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. UC Berkeley professor Cameron Anderson reviewed hundreds of studies dating back more than 70 years to determine whether the desire to have a good reputation is universal. He concluded that high status is something that all people crave and covet, even if they don't realize it. The many studies he reviewed indicated people with low status among their peers were more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and physical ailments. Amy Fisher had to contend with the fact that her crime shattered her reputation, not just among her peers, but all over the country. And she wasn't the only one who wanted to hide from the spotlight. 
Mary Jo Buttafuoco was also exhausted by the public's attention. With Amy in prison, she wanted to get back to a normal life. But Joey wasn't ready to move on. Instead, he was obsessed with the idea of clearing his name, denying that the affair ever happened, let alone that he encouraged Amy to kill his wife for him. At the time, he had Mary Jo convinced that he never slept with Amy Fisher. Most of his family and neighbors also seemed to be on Joey's side. Bolstered by their support, Joey was confident he could convince the rest of America he was innocent as well. Mary Jo said, Joey believed he could talk anybody into anything. In fact, I believe he had talked himself into believing his own version of events. In early 1993, 37-year-old Joey spent weeks giving interviews and press tours in which he aggressively pushed the narrative that Amy Fisher was lying about their affair. But the public didn't respond positively to Joey's media outreach. The majority of America saw him as a predator who seduced and manipulated an underage girl. When Joey and Mary Jo appeared on an episode of Donahue in January of 1993, the studio audience became confrontational and combative. One member of the audience quipped that Amy Fisher had shot the wrong Buttafuoco and had aimed too high. Mary Jo said of the encounter, this audience whipped themselves up into an absolute finger-pointing, name-calling frenzy. It was horrible. Despite the negativity, Joey could still take comfort in the fact that the New York DA had declined to charge him with statutory rape. Authorities had officially closed their investigation of Joey the previous October. They determined Amy Fisher was not a reliable enough witness to help them build a case and they lacked any evidence to corroborate her claims until February of 1993. That month, two former employees at the Buttafuoco's auto body shop came forward. They claimed Joey had openly bragged about sleeping with a 16-year-old girl in July of 1991. Based on their statements, police reopened their investigation. In March of 1993, prosecutors assembled a grand jury to determine whether or not to bring charges against Joey Buttafuoco for third-degree rape, sodomy, and endangerment of a child. 18-year-old Amy Fisher was given a brief reprieve from prison to testify against him. Her mother also testified along with more than 20 other witnesses, including several of Joey's employees, motel clerks who witnessed Joey checking into their rooms, and Amy's ex-boyfriend, Paul Makeley. On Wednesday, April 14, 1993, 37-year-old Joey Buttafuoco was indicted on charges of statutory rape. He was stunned. When he heard the news, he was at work. He immediately called his wife and said, it doesn't mean I am guilty, Mary Jo. It means we have to stick together and be strong. Mary Jo Buttafuoco was furious, but not at Joey. Mary Jo slammed the phone down onto the receiver, ending the call. She couldn't stop shaking. It was too much. The constant headaches and the excruciating pain from the bullet still lodged in her skull made each day torture to get through. And on top of that, 
she had to contend with the reporters camped out on her lawn. She hardly had a moment's peace. Now the incompetent police wanted to make Joey a target. Who did they think they were? Police were supposed to help people, not persecute them. And of course, at the top of her list of troubles, there was that horrible girl sitting in a prison cell, the one who had caused all of this, the one who had ruined her life. Mary Jo could never get Amy Fisher out of her mind. It was all too much. Every day, more weight was added to her shoulders. She was sinking under the burden. And it wasn't fair. Mary Jo was the victim. She and Joey were victims, but nobody seemed to recognize that. There was no sympathy or compassion, only ridicule. They were being attacked and slandered. The world wanted to see them break. Well, she couldn't give them the satisfaction. She couldn't let them win. She and Joey had to show everyone how strong they were. They would survive this like they had survived everything else together. Even after the indictment, Mary Jo Buttafuoco never thought about leaving Joey. She later said, we truly believe Joey was being obviously and unfairly persecuted. She even kept this attitude when Joey agreed to plead guilty to one count of statutory rape. He privately continued to tell Mary Jo he was completely innocent. Despite all evidence to the contrary, he said he accepted the plea only to make the whole matter go away. Dr. Robin Stern, a psychologist and associate director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, would describe Joey's behavior as gaslighting or undermining another person's reality by denying facts until their targets can no longer trust their own perception of reality. Stern cites research dating back to the 1980s, suggesting that women are trained to long and hunger for relationships and connection, a conditioning that makes them vulnerable to exploitation of their attachment. She cautioned that, it can be excruciatingly difficult to pull oneself out of a gaslighting power dynamic. Mary Jo didn't have the energy to confront Joey's pattern of gaslighting. Instead, she accepted her husband's professions of innocence, but to the rest of the world, all they heard was his very public confession. On October 6, 1993, 37-year-old Joey Buttafuoco stood before the court and admitted, on July 2nd, 1991, I had sexual relations with Amy Fisher at the Freeport Motel. Amy was allowed to make her own statement at Joey's sentencing. She took responsibility for her role in shooting Mary Jo, but she also highlighted Joey's harmful influence on her at the time of the crime. She said, I know and believe that had Mr. Buttafuoco permitted me to cross the bridge between adolescence and adulthood unmolested, I would not be where I am today. I do not offer this as an excuse. There is no excuse. I simply offer it for the court's consideration. At the end of the hearing, Joey was sentenced to six months in the county jail. Shortly after the hearing, Joey reported to the Nassau County Jail to begin his sentence. 
and Amy Fisher returned to the Albion State Penitentiary to continue serving hers. When we return, the Buttafucos make a drastic change while Amy Fisher faces a nightmarish routine in prison. Now, back to the story. In November of 1993, 37-year-old Joey Buttafuco reported to the Nassau County Jail to begin serving a six-month sentence for the statutory rape of Amy Fisher. He served just four and a half months before he was released for good behavior. When he was released in March of 1994, his brother Bobby met him in a black stretch limousine. Joey gave reporters a thumbs up and said, I'm done, everything is cool. I did what I had to do to end it and now I'm going home. He reportedly earned a fast $100,000 within moments of his release his fee for giving an exclusive interview to the tabloid program, A Current Affair. Afterwards, he went home to his wife and children. Joey's neighbors threw him a party at a local Italian restaurant where 200 guests celebrated his return. The attendants dressed in black tie, drank champagne, and presented Joey with a cake in the shape of his boat. but he wasn't welcomed home so warmly by everyone. Not long after his release, Amy's father, Elliot Fisher, got into an altercation with Joey outside the Buttafuco's auto body repair shop. Some sources claim that Elliot spat at Joey and threatened to go after him with a shotgun, but Elliot denied this. He said, I'm a 58-year-old heart patient. He's a 38-year-old bodybuilder. Do you think I'm going to threaten him? The following month, an unknown assailant fired 30 rounds at the body shop in the middle of the night. There were no injuries, but the Buttafucos were unnerved. Not long after the shooting, they started to consider leaving the Long Island Enclave where both had spent their entire lives. Mary Jo had hoped life would quiet down once Amy was safely locked up in prison and Joey was home from his jail stay, but she was beginning to think that a normal life was out of reach. She also realized that normal only meant whatever Joey wanted anyway. He still thoroughly enjoyed being the center of attention, thrilled that media outlets offered him thousands of dollars for interviews and appearances. He didn't mind journalists following him around. He sometimes even ordered pizzas for the reporters staking out his house. That summer, a Hollywood agent reached out to Joey, asking whether he was considering a career in entertainment. The agent, whose client list included Tanya Harding and John Wayne Bobbitt, thought Joey might make a good actor. Joey fully committed to his new life as a celebrity. He reasoned to marry Joe. We haven't caused this, but it all happened. We can't change any of it, so we might as well make money from it. But Joey's former lover, 18-year-old Amy Fisher, was far removed from the Buttafuoco spotlight. She was still angry that Joey had received so little jail time after everything he had done, but she also had more pressing things to worry about. Joey was part of her past. 
She was expending all of her energy just getting through each nightmarish day in prison and dealing with her own notoriety. Amy's fame made her a target. Prisoners and guards alike saw her as a spoiled princess and they wanted to make her pay for it. Amy had completed her high school equivalency and was taking college correspondence classes. She theoretically should have been eligible for a clerical job within the prison, but her work detail always involved hard physical labor. She felt the guards gave her difficult work assignments to punish her. She soon developed a reputation for being a defiant prisoner, receiving frequent disciplinary notices. James B. Flateau, the spokesman for the New York State Correctional Services, released a statement that Amy had no respect for authority or any kind of civilized rules or regulations. Amy claimed that prison officials enforced rules selectively just to harass her. She said she was disciplined for things like hemming her pants, dyeing her hair with Kool-Aid, or for letting her nails grow too long. While these were technically violations, the guards were usually lax about punishing people for them. But while others seemingly got off easy, Amy was sent to solitary confinement. Amy said she often spent weeks locked up in solitary. She called the experience psychological torture. Her description is backed by scientific research, which suggests social isolation can cause long-lasting damage to the brain. Neuroscientist Richard Smaney at Thomas Jefferson University conducted a study on mice, which found that neurons in sensory and motor regions of the brain shrunk by 20% after one month of isolation. While Amy was in solitary confinement, she developed the habit of plucking out her leg hairs one by one with a set of tweezers. It was all she could do to fill the time. When she wasn't confined, Amy looked for comfort wherever she could. She developed a close relationship with a corrections officer and wrote him several letters expressing her love for him. Amy didn't realize these communications between prisoners and guards were strictly forbidden. When prison officials discovered her letters, Amy was immediately disciplined. Officials accused her of sexually harassing the guard. She was, again, confined to solitary this time for three months, allowed only a paper gown and a toothbrush. At one point, Amy's letters were leaked and printed in the New York Post. The revelations about her infatuation with this prison guard further cemented her tabloid-fueled reputation as a seductress, hell-bent on ensnaring older men. And this made it all the more difficult for Amy to get help when she was victimized by authority figures. Amy was repeatedly sexually assaulted by correctional officers during her time in prison. The first incident reportedly occurred in October of 1994. She said that she was returning from a visit with her attorney when a guard trapped her in a stairwell and attacked her. A few months later, another guard pulled her into a staff bathroom and assaulted her. She also reported a separate incident in the prison library. According to Amy, they knew they could get away with it because I was labeled a Lolita, a temptress. What better victim than a girl who was perceived as an nymphomaniac? 
In December of 1994, Amy Fisher filed a claim against New York, claiming that the state had failed to protect her in prison. But the corrections department alleged that Amy was lying in an attempt to get transferred to a prison closer to her family in Long Island. Her transfer request was ultimately denied. When the press reached out to Mary Jo Buttafuoco for comment, she agreed with the corrections department saying, this is probably just another one of Amy Fisher's temper tantrums. She is a sociopath, and I back up the corrections department 100%. This was also a particularly dark period for Mary Jo. She was still in excruciating pain from the shooting and subsequent surgeries. She was becoming increasingly reliant on the Percocet doctors prescribed for her to manage her pain. She depended on Joey for support, but he frequently traveled to Los Angeles as he tried to launch a career in entertainment. In May of 1995, their troubles deepened. While Joey was on one of his trips to the West Coast, 40-year-old Mary Jo was awakened one morning by a call from her husband's lawyer. Los Angeles police had arrested Joey for soliciting an undercover police officer posing as a sex worker. Joey claimed that he was at the wrong place at the wrong time, complaining that he was just talking to the woman when he found himself surrounded by police. When reporters swarmed Mary Jo's house asking for comment, she echoed Joey's words, saying that the whole thing was a setup and Joey was a target. The arrest meant that Joey had violated his probation. Joey was ordered to pay a fine, take a mandatory AIDS test, and he was placed on two years probation. Mary Jo did not attend the sentencing hearing. She refused to take Joey's phone calls. She fell into a deep depression. Mary Jo swatted the ringing clock off the table beside her bed to make it shut up. She measured her day in pills now. Soon, it would be time for the next one. She felt like the doses of Xanax and Percocet were the only things keeping her alive, barely. It was a struggle to leave her bed. She knew she had to pull herself together for the children, but she just didn't have the energy. The last few years had sapped it all out of her. And every time she felt like things were turning around, something new happened to knock her down again. It wasn't just random, she now realized. It was Joey. She could finally admit to herself that everything bad happening to her came from his poor judgment. She hadn't wanted to confront it before, she didn't want to admit that maybe everyone judging her was right. All those people who thought she was stupid, deluded, and weak for standing by him. They were probably laughing harder than ever now. She hated that, and she hated that there was nothing she could do about it. All she could do was take another pill. When Joey was paroled, he was met by the usual crowd of reporters outside the jail. But this time, there were no fancy parties or limousines to welcome him home. His friends and neighbors seemed embarrassed. They had openly supported Joey, 
only to be rewarded with another scandal tainting their community. Joey's brother Bobby barred him from the family's body shop. He was too bad for business. Mary Jo contemplated asking for a separation at this time, but when Joey came home, he seemed different. His normally bombastic personality appeared to have diminished. He didn't act like the man who had once traded jokes with Howard Stern on the radio. He seemed sincerely sorry for what he had done. Mary Jo decided that she couldn't put the family through a painful divorce. That would be letting Amy Fisher win. So the Buttafugos stayed together, but both agreed it was time for a change. Joey suggested they move to Los Angeles permanently. Living in a city filled with celebrities, they figured they wouldn't stand out as much as they did in Long Island. Mary Jo was eager for a new start. Unfortunately, she couldn't escape the past so easily. When we return, Amy Fisher comes between the Buttafuoco's yet again. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1996, 40-year-old Joey Buttafuoco, his wife Mary Jo, and their children, 16-year-old Paul and 13-year-old Jessica, moved cross-country from Massapequa, New York to Los Angeles, California. They wanted to start a new life in a friendlier environment. Joey said, We're well accepted out in California. They have a different attitude there. They can see through all this crap. I'm not this image built up by the media. But the Buttafuoco's had another reason for leaving. 21-year-old Amy Fisher would be up for parole in a year. They had no desire to cross paths with her should she be let out of prison. At that point, however, Amy was feeling pessimistic about the possibility of release. In a July 1996 New York Times interview, when asked if she thought she'd be paroled, she replied, not really, they treat me like I'm the poster child for violent crime. Amy was still reckoning with the daily horrors of prison, though things seemed to improve after her 1994 lawsuit moved forward in federal court. With Amy's suit, the prison was under extra public scrutiny, and it wasn't long before a new scandal made headlines. In the fall of 1996, Amy's mother told reporters about a sergeant at Albion Prison who had become obsessed with Amy. He was one of 22 guards and officials named as defendants in the lawsuit, which alleged that Amy had been subject to rape and abuse during her time in jail. The guard denied that he had sexually assaulted Amy, but admitted he had acted improperly by sending her intimate letters, including one that opened with, hello, my gorgeous gerbil. The guard claimed issues with a drug addiction had led to his lapse in judgment. The corrections department inspector general quickly transferred the guard to another prison following an investigation. Another guard, who was also accused of sexual assault by two other inmates, resigned his position. Prison officials scrambled to control the damage. Amy later said, quote, the Department of Corrections did protect me after that point in 1996. I was no longer raped or harassed. 
They knew at this point they would have to answer for their actions if they continued to harass me. In August of 1997, Amy went up for parole. Her attorney, Eric Nyberg, felt confident that she would go free. According to Amy, Nyberg had been soothing her for years, telling her she would never serve her full sentence. He told Amy he had arranged a deal with the district attorney's office and claimed the DA would provide a letter to the parole board backing her release. But when Amy's parole date arrived, no letter was produced and her parole was denied. Feeling betrayed, Amy and her mother fired Nyberg and hired a new attorney, Bruce Barquette, to take over the case. But by now, Amy had realized she might not be going home anytime soon. Still, once she no longer had to worry about attacks from the guards, it became easier for her to keep her head down and wait out her sentence. She kept busy taking college courses, reading books, and listening to music. She was even elected secretary of Albion's Inmate Liaison Committee, a group established to help inmates communicate their issues and concerns to the prison administration. In this new leadership role, she used her name recognition to her advantage, writing letters to various cosmetic companies to ask for donations of soap and shampoo. She had plenty of projects to fill her days, but her thoughts still occasionally turned to Joey Buttafuoco, whom she dismissively referred to as Mr. Hollywood and his wife. About Mary Jo, Amy said, Oh, I feel sad for her. She does have intelligence and people should sympathize with her because what I did was so obviously wrong. But she stays with him. So what does that make her? After a few years in Los Angeles, Mary Jo Buttafuoco still felt adrift. She had become completely dependent on painkillers. She said she was taking 30 pills a day to stay normal. In the late summer of 1998, she decided it was time to get help. She talked it over with Joey and sought treatment at the Betty Ford Clinic. At one point, she was asked to write a letter to Amy Fisher as a therapeutic exercise. She poured out every ounce of anger and vitriol she felt towards the woman who had ruined her life. Mary Jo seethed that she scrawled words across the blank page so quickly she could barely process what she was writing. The precise words didn't matter. What mattered was letting all the rage come out. She hated Amy Fisher. That girl had destroyed everything. Her life was forever ruined. Neither Mary Jo nor Joey nor their children would ever have any peace, and all because Amy Fisher decided to have a temper tantrum. Mary Jo could already feel herself emptying. She released every emotion she had through her pen. It was cathartic. She wrote for hours, forcing herself to relive the day of the shooting and the turmoil that came after. It had cost them their friendships, their peace, their happiness. She wanted to capture all of it. Finally, she tossed her pen down in exhaustion. It was done. She didn't quite feel better, but she felt different, lighter, 
like she'd cut out some diseased part of herself and cast it aside. Now that it was out of her, she could finally rest. After writing out her feelings, Mary Jo attended a ceremony and dropped the letter into a campfire. With the help of counseling, she began the process of letting her anger go. Mary Jo left the clinic feeling she was finally on a path to recovery. Four months after she completed the treatment program, Mary Jo's lawyer called her. Amy Fisher's mother wanted to meet with her in person. Mary Jo agreed. When they were in the same room together, Mary Jo felt pity for the woman. Like her, Amy's mother had gone through hell since the fiasco had unfolded. They reconciled over their shared pain. Afterward, Amy's new lawyer, Bruce Barquett, suggested that she too reach out to Mary Jo. Amy wrote a letter to Mary Jo. In it, she said, Mom told me you were a nice, kind person. I've always tried to think you were mean and horrible because it was easier for me to deal with what I did to you. I'm not sure if you'll ever believe that I'm sorry for what I did to you, but I am. I had a lot of anger inside of me and I directed it at you. That anger wasn't for you. And I know now that what I did to you is the worst thing one human being can do to another. Mary Jo read this letter with an overwhelming sense of relief. For years, it had seemed like nobody really recognized or empathized with the pain she'd endured. Now, someone was finally taking responsibility for it. After this letter, Mary Jo's feelings towards Amy softened. They would never be close, but the thought of Amy's release no longer filled Mary Jo with dread. Soon after, Bruce Barquette came up with a new strategy he thought might lead to an early release for Amy. Barquette discovered that her previous lawyer, Eric Nyberg, had been sending her intimate letters, poems, and declarations of love for years. Amy admitted her relationship with Nyberg was intense, but at the time, she didn't see a problem. He was just one of many older men who seemed fixated on her, and she thought he was protecting her. Bruce Barquette felt differently. He filed a motion, arguing that Amy's original plea agreement should be thrown out because her previous attorney could not provide her with adequate representation. Instead of going through the trouble of a new trial, the DA's office worked with Barquette to arrange a settlement to reduce Amy's prison term. But even with the DA office's cooperation, a judge still had to approve the settlement. To bolster support for this settlement, Bruce Barquette asked Mary Jo to make a statement on Amy's behalf. She agreed to write a letter to the court, stating, Amy Fisher has spent enough time in jail as punishment for her crime. There is no reason to keep her in jail any longer. In April of 1999, Amy's conviction was vacated and she was allowed to go free. Mary Jo was present in the courtroom for the decision. She felt a sense of peace. But when she returned home to California, that peace dissipated. Her husband Joey seemed moody upon her return. He reportedly told Mary Jo 
you never should have forgiven her. I never will. The couple quickly grew even more strained than before. Their marriage had survived the disastrous consequences of Joey's affair with Amy Fisher, but it evidently could not survive Mary Jo's reconciliation with her. Joey and Mary Jo separated at the end of 1999, after 23 years of marriage. They finalized their divorce in 2003. Since then, the Butterfucos have mostly tried to stay out of the public eye. Joey returned to car repair work. He said, I do all the Ferraris. I do a little TV and movies, but that doesn't put a lot of butter on my bread. Meanwhile, 26-year-old Amy Fisher found life after prison difficult. Back home in Long Island, everybody recognized her. She couldn't enjoy normal things like going out to bars or dating in public. In the year 2000, she signed up for Match.com to expand her social network. There, she met Louis Bellera. Newspaper reports from the time described him as a man in his 50s and something of a Joey Buttafuoco lookalike. Her past experiences did not deter Amy from dating an older man. They had a son together in 2001, and in 2003, they married. But Amy still had trouble finding a steady job. Even after changing her name, people recognized her as an infamous criminal. She tried to make a living as a writer, drafting columns for various publications, including the Long Island Press. In 2004, she published a memoir detailing her affair with Joey and the aftermath. She couldn't escape her past, so she decided to embrace the public persona, hoping some good might come out of it. She made appearances on Oprah to promote her book and participated in a reunion with the Buttafuoco's staged by Entertainment Tonight in 2006. Once she was back in the public eye, Amy abruptly changed course. She apparently couldn't find enough writing work to make a living and instead embarked on a career in pornography. She said, I make adult films and I look at it as they are offering employment. I need employment, no one else will give me employment. I just go with it. I don't know what else to do. In 2007, Amy and her husband released a sex tape. She followed this up with three adult films released between 2009 and 2011 before announcing that she was retired. She later claimed her husband pushed her into sex work because he loved the attention he got from promoting his notorious wife. She said, him and Joey were the same that way. They say you always pick the same person. Amy's pattern of selecting partners with similar negative traits is one recognized by many psychologists. According to marriage and family therapist, Jody Virgo, we are often unconsciously drawn to the same dysfunction over and over because it strikes a familiar chord reminiscent of the wounds we experienced in childhood. When these wounds go unaddressed, it can become a pathology. After years of conflict with her husband, Amy Fisher's marriage ended in 2015. Since her divorce, Amy has stopped making public appearances. She changed her name again to avoid associations with her past life, saying, it's just not worth it. I want a private life. 
A private life may not be possible for someone like Amy Fisher. As Los Angeles media consultant Anthony Mora said over 20 years ago, her case kind of launched the tabloid decade. Today, in the age of Twitter and TMZ, tabloid culture has only gotten stronger, and it unmistakably shaped the trajectory of Amy Fisher's life. At the age of 17, she was catapulted to public consciousness as the Long Island Lolita and never escaped that label. Every choice she has made since has been colored by the caricature. It makes sense then that after 27 years in the public eye, she has now opted for anonymity. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler as a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.